Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. And it's always great to catch up with one of our former stars from the past who's currently overseas and just remind him of how much he misses home and how much we miss him as well. South Africa's Davis Cup captain joining us again on From the Boardroom to the Locker Room, Christopher Rensberg. Good Morning, your time. Good evening, our time. And how are you in Texas? I'm doing good. It's uh, it's fun to be here and very excited that finally, uh, you know, after like nearly four years, three years in the Davis Cup, I'm finally going to come home for a home tie. So, yes, tell us all about it. Yes, we're all excited to have you back home. Tell us about who we're playing and what we can expect. Listen, we are in the African zone three. We unfortunately, you know, had a bad run for like two or three ties in a row. We lost uh, Harris because of an injury and stuff. And then we lost some of the college players like Philip Hennan and those guys. I was really good always for South Africa during some of the ties. And we had to get some new players that is actually doing quite well now, ranked about 500 and 600 in the world, but we in the building phase. So I get to see all the new guys, but we're playing in Pretoria that's excited. And we're playing against countries. There's about seven countries and us that would be playing in this round robin competition. So also for the first time, we are playing over three days, two groups. And then you got to win your group to get to the final. There's no semifinals. What's great about that is not only is it being played here in South Africa, being played in Pretoria, but we here are so starved of any form of competitive tennis in South Africa that I'm expecting a massive turnout to really give the boys a boost. Yeah, I think there's two two ways to look at this, Ty. It's always great for South African people to see the best South Africans playing, you know, at home, live. And then from my side is you're going to play three teams. So I could give everyone a chance to play. You can kind of get to see where if you go into these ties that are only against one country, you don't have a lot of flexibility because you only have, you know, your two players that's going to play. You might put a third in, but in this situation, because it's a round robin, you could actually now have a chance to see like uh, a little bit more the variety of what the guys are all about and maybe even see some of them play two or three times back to back. So that's pretty cool. Tell us a little bit about the team. Is Lloyd back? I know he's had some good results overseas over the last couple of weeks. Looks like he's relatively fit again. Is he available? Uh, I am in the process of talking to him. The thing is that uh, August is a tough time for anyone who likes to play at the high, high level because it's right in the middle of the summer of, of America getting ready for the U.S. Open. But, you know, we are kind of chatting and depending on how he's doing in the next few months, that will determine where he will be. But it'll be nice to have him back at least and hopefully Raven you know, he's still uh, playing out there. I know he's getting to the end of his career, but always a great guy to have. And so you asked me the countries. So I pulled it up here. So it's Namibia, Algeria, Senegal, Togo, 
Ivory Coast, South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Benin. So there's some good players that are coming out of Africa, and we're going to have to be in the top of our game for this. Yes, and also, you know, getting ready for the altitude and uh, going to make sure that the guys are there at least a week before because for the altitude, you know, if you're not used to altitude, then that can be a, an advantage. Which is very interesting that you mention that because it's not just the altitude that the other players from the other countries are going to have to get used to. It's the fact that we don't really have too many players playing back home um, who are used to, well, they'll get used to it, but they're going to be coming from around the world, aren't they? Yeah, so that's why it's important, actually, if you can work on your schedule. The earlier you come for altitude, the quicker you can get used to it. Because the people who are struggling are the people who are coming down there like two or three days you know, just before the tournament. So these are all some of the logistics that we will have to discuss with the South African Tennis Federation and the board in when can we get them here or to Pretoria. So this is always a problem for whoever is Davis Cup captain in South Africa to actually get through, if I may say, the administrative logistics of getting the players here from getting, as you mentioned, the board on your side, expenses. It's not like there's big sponsorship around South African tennis. Um, how do you entice the guys to come besides, obviously, they want to play for their country? I think the last part that you said is probably what this has to be about. It's for you to put that green and gold on and to go and play at home for your country, that's like the ultimate, you know, that, that's what we all, all strive for. Fortunately for me, it didn't happen. But uh, anytime you walk on the court, you know that the players are going to give their 100%. Because otherwise, they won't take pride in playing for their country. So when you call people to want to play, you know, this is like the phone call. It's kind of very interesting. It's kind of the part that you really love, being the captain is when you make that call and you know that they're going to hear that they picked or are they available. And that's, I, I really enjoy that part of it. The part I don't enjoy as much is when you have to look someone in the eye the night before, two nights, and say, you're not playing tomorrow. I'm uh, letting you sit out. So there's a pro and a con here. But, Christo, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I know that it's a difficult decision for you to have to make. Isn't it kind of how you grow in the sport? And sometimes you have to sit on the touchline and work a little bit harder to get into whatever team it is you're playing for. 100%. Because if sport was easy, you know, and everyone would just win, there will be so many more players. There won't be any other jobs. Everyone would just play tennis. So like you said, tennis is hard. It's an individual sport. You're out there on your own. And the good thing I always say to people when they talk about, you know, rugby or cricket or tennis or any team sports versus tennis. In tennis, if I work hard, a computer is going to go and pick me, except for team sports like maybe Davis Cup or something. But you still mostly look at rankings. And you, if you work hard, even if you lose three or four, matches in a row, but you're playing well and you're working as hard as you can, 
the computer is going to say you rank that high and then you'll enter tournaments and you'll get there. You don't have to rely on a coach having to pick you. So this is the only time in Davis Cup really that a tennis player feels what it's like to be in a team sport where you have to rely on what the captain wants you to do. But again, when you play or not getting picked, it should be an incentive for you to work hard. You're 100% correct to prove that you should have played. And then this past weekend is the perfect example of what you're talking about. I mean, a guy like Jan Leonard Struff making it through to the Madrid Open final against Carlos Alcaraz as a lucky loser. He lost in a qualifying tournament to get into the main draw, cracked a bit of luck, and made it to the final as a 33-year-old. I mean, that once again proves how amazing sport is and how when you play a game like tennis, you against your opponent on the other side of the net, nothing else matters. I love those stories because the thing, you know, sometimes I coach a little bit, and the one thing you want from the player is say, let's do all the hard work as hard as you can so when the opportunity comes, you're not so surprised and not be ready for it. So just looking back at that story, it was just good. I actually watched about an hour of it. And this guy played three more matches. Uh, yeah, two, two more matches than Alcaraz. Yeah. And still, I mean, he just had about 10 minutes of a just a bad period from 2-1 to 4-1 in the third set. But what a great story of an opportunity that he took after losing. Kudos to him, man. So happy for him. And then remember, Emma Raducanu, US Open, two years ago, they yeah. qualified and won the tournament. Love those stories. And 14 years older than what is, I guess, going to be the next superstar of men's tennis in Carlos Alcaraz. Guy's amazing, huh? He is. What he's doing, actually, what's making a change is every time he hits the ball, there's movement forward. So he's very well taught in that where people just, he doesn't play off the back foot all the time. Anytime when he goes back, there's a transfer in into the ball. And he's bringing back the, the sport of have to now go and finish some of the shots at the net. I talked to team's coach that took him when he was very young until about five years ago. And when we talked about two years ago, he says, the baseline game is getting plateaued. There's only so good you can start getting at the back now. Whoever is going to start moving forward is going to start changing the game because you're going to have to have more things happening now on the tennis court and he's bringing that and suddenly you see now more and more people are going to the net because you just can't out hit everyone at the back anymore so that's what's that do you think that's why he might be difficult to beat on a variety of surfaces i think that's definitely a factor that People will have to get a little bit more all around now because what he also does is he brings people to the net. And we have this saying, at this stage, there's not a lot of people that's really good at the net. 
So when you can bring them to the net on your terms, then you're going to, because look what happened with Strauf. He went to the net, but he was too close to the net. And when you're too close to the net, you become a very bad volleyer. So I'm opening up a can of worms here, but twice he was too close to the net. And Alcaraz hit the ball hard. And when you're that close to the net, you kind of stand up. You're not going forward. So when he came up, his head raised and he missed both volleys. Yeah. And that was in that period, 2-1 to 4-1. So now having to learn where is your positions and Alcaraz does it really well. Are you, as a, an ex-player and somebody who's still involved in the game, does it concern you a little bit that somebody at this young age of 20 seems to be so injury-prone already? That's why, you know, in Miami, about a few weeks ago when we were there, the guys on tennis, in the olden days, you could just go and play tennis. Now you have to work your whole plan around your off-court training. It's becoming very physical now. So somewhere there, all the medical side of how to train these people is going to, you know, I don't have the answer for that yet, but... You can think how physical this game is becoming and everyone is hitting the ball harder and harder and you wonder what the change will be or what's gonna, how it's yeah. going to look 10 years from now. Well, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've really, really enjoyed and I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at it and I would suggest you do if you haven't is the Netflix documentary called Breakpoint. Um, it not only gives us as a spectator an insight into what goes on before and after a tennis match, the amount of work that the players, we all know they train hard, but how hard they actually train down after a game. And then somebody like uh, Sabalenka, who against Sviatek this weekend, one of the best ladies finals I've seen since 2014, number one and number two, haven't actually played each other in a big tournament. She is so powerful and hits the ball so hard. I mean, they say that she can bench press something like 250 pounds or something ridiculous like that. And the way the ball is being struck, the power in the game right now, men's and women's tennis. I mean, when last did you see a female final last two hours and 25 minutes of power hitting tennis? It's incredible. You're right. I mean, the way that the power game is, it's like you have to dictate. If you don't dictate early in the rally, you either have to be super, super fast. So the people who are just making balls and grinding, they have to be super fit and super fast because they have to absorb that power game now. And this is another thing that Alcaraz does well. And Sabalenka is starting to do it. And obviously, Swiatek is a great athlete. That's why she survived. You're going to have to start protecting your baseline. So if you get out of position, you're going to have to get closer. Otherwise, you're going to lose court coverage and you can't get back in the point. And I have a feeling the easiest shot in tennis right now, or let's say 90% of the time, is actually the return of the second serve. So previously, just make the second serve return and set yourself up. I think the game is also going to change. Because if you have a shot at returning a second serve with more aggression, if it's coming towards you, you're going to have to take that shot because you might not get another chance for three or four balls later in a rally. 
So I feel the return is going to become something that people are going to have to work on. And I guess that that's something that a lot of the coaches will be instilling in their players heading towards the French Open, which is coming up at Roland Garros, the second big Grand Slam of the year. On the red clay court there, two weeks of action, 132 players will start off. And then we're all still wondering whether the 14-time champion, Rafael Nadal, is going to be there. My question to you is he's pulled out again in Italy for next week. How does he go into the French Open without any match practice? I understand being fit to play, but there's a difference between being fit to play and being match fit. Does a guy who's won it 14 times think to himself, well, do I go there and perhaps lose in the first round, or do I give it a miss this year? What would you suggest to him if you were his coach? I'm going to give you my two cents here. I think I didn't think he was going to pull out of Rome, but he didn't want to show his cards. Because he's at this age now, so half of you is right, and the other half we have to now chat about, because you're also correct there, you would like to have some matches in, because he's also done it before, you know, play some matches before. But yeah. I have a feeling he didn't want to show his cards now, because he obviously can't go and play five tournaments on clay before the French, just because of his age. Sure. But I know he's training and he's probably don't want anyone else to know how he's eating or how he's playing. So it will show now that he pulled out of Rome that uh, I'm a little bit surprised because we always thought he was not going to go and play. Play Rome, not a lot of matches uh, so people can study him and if he does well, it's great. And then he's ready for the French. Now, I, I think maybe the first two matches would be interesting for him at the French and then he'll be right back Usually, if you don't play, you just want to get those first two or three in. But, you know, anyone who walks on the court against him, EAL, and yeah. off, half of it, you're scared. But if not even more than half. <laughs> I know. So it's going to be interesting now that he's not playing at all. The only thing that could happen to him is he could have a poor draw and end up against this 33-year-old young Leonard Struff in the first round by virtue of the of, of the, the fact that Struff has just come off this Madrid Open final and, and could perhaps be in the first round of the French Open and he could be there. I guess Carlos Alcaraz has got to be the favourite going into the tournament, whether Rafa plays or not. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Djokovic is still around. So there is a few guys there. I don't know who I'm picking. Who are you picking? Um, well, you know, it's like like you say, you can never back against Rafael Nadal at the French Open. You'd have to be crazy. I mean, the thing with the French Open for me, um, with both the names you've mentioned who have played very little tennis, is the fact that it's a Grand Slam and you don't play every single day. So you've got that. You might play on the Monday and then you don't play again till the Wednesday. And because it's in France, you get a, a bit of luck and it rains a bit. And you might have between matches, um, but I don't think outside of those three, maybe Daniel Medvedev might have a chance, but I think those are the guys that you've got to have your money on, don't you think? I know you're talking about Nadal. I think what would help him, if you and Nadal fan, is he would need a little bit of help the first week in maybe getting through within four sets. You know, three would obviously better. But if he puts two five-set matches in the first week, 
that is hard. You can you can maybe get away with it in the second week with one of them, but if it catches up too quickly because now of not the matches he's got behind his belt, because that's where it it plays a factor if you're not match tough and he has not played any matches on the clay. Then if you have these tough ones, then they take a little bit more out of you. There's a few floaters there, but you have yeah. to go with Nadal, Alcaraz, you know, Djokovic. You know, you have Sinner and Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas is just always knocking yeah. on the door. And then Fritz is actually, he's starting to actually do okay. The USA flag guy, him, and then Wayne's guy of Tiafo. They're putting a few matches together, but... You will have to go with one of the Spaniards or Djokovic, I think. Yeah, I guess the Spaniards and perhaps the Argentinians. The, I guess the ladies' draw is so much more difficult. There's so many good players playing uh, tennis on the ladies' side now. And again, back to that power-hitting situation. We looked the other day. I was with Emilio Sanchez uh, at his academy. I went there for two days in Naples, Florida, and we just sat and he brought up the stat on the UTR rankings, if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Between the top woman, and I think it's going down to like uh, 180, it drops by like one or one or one. With the men, there's a spaces of two, two, and two. So the ladies are so much closer to each other on the ranking. I think it's less than, I think, one, one and a half points on the ranking for Switek going down to a girl that's 180. So that's why you, you're totally correct. There's so many close ones that can come through. I mean, Sabalenka, obviously, and Pagola is actually starting to do well. My friend coaches uh, David Witt. He coached Venus Williams. So she's starting to move up there. But... We're gonna have to we're gonna have to scream for our African girl, Joubert. Yeah. And she is really nice. I've met her before, you know, but she's nice. So we might have to stay local <laughs> on our local <laughs> continent. What do you think? I fully agree. And I, I'm delighted to see the progress that Lloyd Harris is making. I mean, he's gone through a couple of rounds in the last cup, got a week or two to go. Um, and he's always the guy that seems to get up there in a in a grand slam, and if he catches a good draw. Um, you know, you never know. I mean, I don't think he can win. I mean, of course, uh, it would be great, but I think he's got more chance at Wimbledon than you think. But at the French Open, if he's fit, you know, he can get through to certainly the last 16. I think just because of him being away from the tennis for a while, this should make him, you know, mentally be eager again to want to play because when you take time off, you kind of miss it. And then you get back and then you dig in deep and you focus and you don't mind grinding because you know you're only going to get better again. And because he's already been up there, that's always a plus for someone that's played at the high level. Somewhere in that subconscious mind, you've been there. It's not new. You just got to find that, you know, where is that balance where now you can just play without thinking too much and you start getting your timing back. So very good for him to start getting back again. And don't you think um, in years gone by, particularly in the days that you were playing, you had the Lendl and the Connors and then McEnroe a little bit earlier than that. And then you had Boris Beck and you had one or two names dominating. And then years gone by, it was Rafa and Roger and Novak. Now 
You look at the top 10, and you've got Djokovic, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Sinner, Kyrgios, Taylor Fritz, Rafa, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Rune, Demeneur, Kachanov, Tommy Paul. I mean, you talk about anybody, even in the top 20, who can beat anybody, generally not in a final when you come up against the top three or four, but it's so much more competitive and so much more open now. You're definitely right. I will say that on the women's, the story you're telling, on the women's, it's even more closer than on the men. But the thing is, you're right. If you didn't know anything about tennis and you go on a practice court and you watch two people practice and you don't know who they are, I bet you if there's a guy 180 hitting with a guy like Chichipas or Djokovic or whoever, and you don't know them, you don't know really that there's about 200 spots between the two. The only difference that's happening is the great players at 30-40 would still aim their serve or they'll take the shot, where what happens is the people that are just ranking a little bit lower, like the ones who are 30 or 40 or 60, when it gets to those points, you can see the court just gets a little bit smaller for them. They just don't hit the ball. The ball's just got a few miles an hour slower. It's <laughs> That's the fine line. That's why they sometimes say the match comes down to two or three points. And we usually, I don't watch a whole match, but I always like to watch the break points. Or if it's five all or six all, then I want to watch. And then the beginning of the tiebreaker also looks a little bit different than the end of the tiebreaker. And that's when you see the little, little fine art about the differences. It's really mental then. Of course it is. You say it's a little bit slower. I think at 30 and 40, between you and me, the eyesight starts to go a little bit as well. <laughs> 100 miles an hour. You don't see it as quick, do you? No, you do. You're right. You know, every, everything, the older you get, everything gets faster and you feel like you're getting slower. <laughs> yeah, and your arms getting longer and longer when you have to read stuff. Christopher, it's always an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I'm so delighted you're going to be coming back home for a week or two into Pretoria. Sorry about the bulls over the weekend getting hammered by my stormers. But hey, we're talking tennis, not rugby. Have a lucky evening. Thank you so much for chatting to us. That's tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. We've served up a good one tonight. Be nice to each other. Bye for now.